If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We continue in our study of the book of Galatians. And as I have been doing, I think it's helpful to unpack what Paul is saying to think in terms of a story, that he's telling a series of stories. Um, And I don't want to overplay the matter. I'm reminded of the quote by Mark Twain that, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, that I'm thinking in terms of story, and so I, I see story everywhere. But I think, in fact, it's it's there, if, if we would see it. He begins by telling his own story, a series of stories in the first two chapters. Um, and he does so to establish that he is, in fact, a capital A apostle, but also that the gospel he preached was not from man, but was, in fact, from God. And then he tells the story of the gospel as part of his story. Um, When he rebuked Peter and he tried to remind Peter, this is what the gospel is all about. God had a plan from Abraham to Israel through Christ to the world. Um, And somehow people had said, no, the plan sort of stopped with Israel. And that simply was not the case. Israel was to be a light to the world. They failed to do that. God sent his son to be the light of the world. And in fact, he was faithful even unto death, and he became the savior of the world. Then in chapter two, or chapter three, where we are, um, Paul asks the Galatians, what is your story? And I put it in the form of a question, because in fact, what Paul does is ask a series of questions of the Galatians. He starts out rather harshly, as we saw last week, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. pointed to two things, as I mentioned last week. First of all, they bear some responsibility, but in fact, they have been led astray by these men who have come from Jerusalem. Um, He tells them right off the bat, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is the gospel. Jesus was crucified. But instead, they have turned away from that, or they are turning away from that. Um, I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthians, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Corinthians had made the mistake of turning from the gospel, the crucified Messiah, to wisdom, worldly wisdom. And the Galatians were in the process of making the mistake of turning from the crucified Messiah to the law that they had to keep the law. So Paul says to them, I would like to, uh, to learn just one thing from you. But then he asks a series of questions. It isn't just one question, but a series of questions. And here we find their story. By the way, questions are in many ways the most effective ways to communicate because it draws people out. So he says, did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the gospel, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered much or so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? And then did God, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So their lives began as believers in the spirit. They received the spirit of God. They had suffered for the gospel. Miracles had been done among them. None of these had anything to do with the law or their observing of the law. 
It was, in fact, the grace of God as seen in the gospel. Then Paul tells them Abraham's story, and he does so by quoting two different parts of Abraham's story. Um, The point in both is that Abraham believed God. It was faith. It wasn't anything that he did. It was that he believed in a faithful and truthful God. Um, The first story is, actually the second story is in Genesis 15, and then the first story is in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham to leave his people. And then he said, I will bless those who will bless you, whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Um, It is this last statement that opens the door for the Galatians, for us who are Gentiles, to become a part of the family of God beginning with Abraham, okay? Um, I think, if I had to imagine, that the men who came from Jerusalem, probably they would have preferred if Paul had started with Moses. Start with Moses, but he doesn't. He starts with Abraham, and Abraham was at least six and a half centuries before Moses. And as much as they liked Father Abraham, I think they would have preferred that Jesus started with Moses, but in fact, he does not. Today, he continues with a series of stories, and we'll look at two of them, and the Lord willing, we will look at more in the weeks to come. The first story today is the story of the curse. If you will, look at verse number 10, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now, I think when it comes to a verse like this, that many of us, and probably myself, we think in a particular way, you know, that, you know, Moses spoke to Israel and he said, cursed is a man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out, then all the people shall say, Amen. Um, In a few verses, we will see, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So I think we think in almost a a judicial, a legal sense. But I think, in fact, there's something going on here that is quite personal. It's not impersonal. It's not blind justice, if you wish. Uh, There's something very personal going on here. The quote uh, comes from Deuteronomy 27. And Moses had given them instructions in uh, Deuteronomy 27. When you get into the promised land, he was not, God would not allow him to enter. When you get there, you're going to come to two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. And one will be the Mount of Cursing and one will be the Mount of Blessing. And the 12 tribes would be divided up. Um, On Mount Ebal would be Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, And then on Mount Gerizim would be the rest, the other six tribes. And in between them would be the Levites. And the Levites would be reading aloud what Moses had said. And in chapter 27, it is a series of cursed is every man who, and then you sort of fill in the blank. You know, if a man does this, he will be cursed. And then the people would respond, Amen. Amen. You know, yes, we agree. 
what you're saying is true. That if a person does this, then in fact, they will be cursed. In chapter 28, we have what the Levites were supposed to say about blessing. What's fascinating to me about this is that it is not the same format. You know, cursed is the man who does these things. So you would think it would be, blessed is the man who does these things. But in fact, it's not. It starts out by saying, blessed is the man who you know, does what God says. And then it says, you'll be blessed here, you'll be blessed there. Um, it's something very, very different. Um, the law of God is not boring. It's not dry. It's not impersonal. It is, in fact, quite personal, as we will see. The idea of a curse has a long history in the Old Testament, and it begins in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, God, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, for since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So early on, chapter 3 of the Old Testament, there is the idea of the curse. Let's fast forward ahead to the end of the Old Testament. The last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Um, in between, we find a series of curses. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse. Then in Genesis 12, what I read earlier, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What's the big deal with the curse? What's the story? What is the deal with the curse? I would define it this way. A curse is the personal reaction of God to human sin. We see it at the beginning in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin and God responds in a personal way. It isn't a legal system. This is, they have offended God. They have sinned against God. And there is a curse. And the last mentioning Malachi 4, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Um, in the promise to Abraham, I will curse. It's very personal. It's very personal. 
In this light, what Paul writes in verse 10 makes sense. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. It isn't like, okay, we have all these rules, and you have to keep the rules. If you don't keep them, you're under a curse. When you break God's law, that is something personal against God. You have God against what God has commanded. It is God's personal reaction to sin. Um, And Paul didn't make this up, okay? Paul is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27, okay? Paul doesn't make up this thing, this story of the curse. This is something we find in scripture. You're like, wait a minute. Let's look at the timeline. Wasn't in fact the law given before the Mount of Cursing and the Mount of Blessing? Yes. then how can Paul say that the law is a source of curse? Well, God made a promise to Abraham. And the promise that he made isn't simply for the Jews or to the Jews, but for all the nations. Abraham's family was, in fact, to do what God had called them to do. They were to be the light of salvation to the world. Um, That's the only reason, by the way, that God promised Isaac to him, so that there would be Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, and then the tribes. It's so that they could be a light to the world. Otherwise, God could make a promise to Abraham just for him, and that's it. But no, it was for his family that would be after him. But something happened to his family. And the book of Genesis tells us that. And so does Exodus, so does Numbers and Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament. Abraham's descendants failed to do what God called them to do. They had the promise. They were, if you wish, the promise bearers. They did not keep God's, they didn't keep the promise. They failed to do what God said. And in fact, one could argue they were an an obstruction to God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Rather than sharing God's law to the world and saying there's one true God and this is what he says, they kept it to themselves. And not very well because they were worshiping idols and false gods at the same time. So, um, the men from Jerusalem are in fact telling the Galatian believers who are Gentiles, you need to do this. And Paul is saying, you know what? You go down, that's the road of the curse. Because you have to keep every single one of the laws. And if you remember in our study in the book of James, James says if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of breaking them all. And in Paul's words, you're under a curse. Okay? The way to live is by faith and not by keeping the law. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. Look at verse number 11. Clearly, no one is justified or made right or righteous before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. I don't know if you noticed, but it's in quotation marks because this is a quote. This is a quote 
from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Okay? Again, Paul's not making this up. This is something, and it's not just a New Testament thing. These aren't the words of Jesus. This is something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. You have a choice, basically, Paul is saying. You can go down the road of the curse, or you can go down the road that Abraham did. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will trust a faithful God. And now that the Messiah has come, we put our trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. So you have a choice, Galatians. You can go down the road of the curse. You know that story so well. Um, By the way, at this point, there's no New Testament. There's just the Old Testament. And the last word in the Old Testament is curse. It's the last word. You want to go down that road? Or do you want to follow in the steps of Abraham? A man of faith. You're supposed to be people of faith. The righteous will live by faith. I have in my notes, uh, it seems inevitable that whenever we do verse by verse that I come upon a verse that's difficult and if I had my way, we would skip it. But that would be less than, uh, well, it wouldn't be right, okay? We have to do it. So look, if you would, at verse number 12. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. There are a number of reasons why this is a difficult verse for me, because I would argue that keeping the law does, in fact, require faith. The beginning of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God. If you accept that by faith, then you go to the rest of the commandments. So for me, I would say that if you believe in the law of God, to a certain extent, you have faith. And I would argue that a person who lives by the law of God will in fact live a better life than if they live apart from the law of God. I've seen this several times, even this morning, reading something. Uh, But again, I were watching uh, a podcast uh, in which uh, the person, it's his show, but he had on two guests, and one is an atheist, and one is an Orthodox Jew. And toward the end of the conversation, what they were saying is, you know, our country's in a mess, and what we need to do is to return to the Christian basis of civilization. I'm like, you're an atheist, you're an Orthodox Jew, and you're calling Israel to, re- or you're calling the United States to return to a Christian civilization? Well, the fact is, if you follow the law of God, you'll live a better life than if you don't. And these men recognize that. Um, I also think, you know, people uh, put a... a was a contrast between law and faith. That is, the law is a matter of doing and faith is a matter of believing. But we saw when we went through James, this is a false dichotomy because faith, in fact, includes, well, it is believing and doing. So it's not one or the other. It's like, well, if you go down the road of curse, that's a doing word. And if you follow Abraham's road, that's a believing. No, believing and doing go together. What helped me, 
I think what Paul intended, um, is a contrast between the two verses. The quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by faith. And then in verse 12, it's a quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5, the man who does these things will live by them. The key words are will live. What is Paul trying to say? What does he mean by quoting Leviticus? Israel was given God's law, but it was not merely enough that they had the law. We have the law of God. God has revealed it to us. Um, That's not enough. They were, in fact, to obey them, to live by them, if you wish, to do these things. But, ultimately, it is impossible. Because we are sinners, we are incapable of living perfect lives. We will every day break God's laws. Doesn't mean we're like, well, okay, that's just the way it is. No, we are to live by God's law with the recognition that we are not capable of keeping it. One failure, you're under a curse. So you don't give up, okay? Don't let, what is the expression? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, okay? We cannot keep God's law perfectly, but it is good for us to live by God's law, to honor our parents, to not kill people, to not commit murder, to not covet, to not steal. These are good things. The rest of the world was already under a curse. But now that Israel's been given a law, it's under a curse of a different type because it is a failure to do what they know to be right. Um, One writer put it this way, if Israel were to stay under the curse forever, as appeared inevitable, granted that nobody in Israel did in fact abide by everything written in the Torah, then the promises would never be released into the wider world and Israel itself could never be renewed. That is, the promise made to Abraham could not be fulfilled. But look at the next verse, verse number 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. If you were to ask someone who knows a bit about the Christian faith, what does this verse mean? Why did or how did the Messiah, why did he become a curse for us? You probably get something like, well, it's so that we would be freed from sin, that we would be able to share in the fellowship with God for all eternity. But Paul goes in a very different direction. But first things first, what is the curse of the law? That is verse number 10. If you rely on observing the law, you're under a curse. So that is the curse. So when one breaks one commandment, that's it. You're under a curse. You are on the path of being cursed. Okay? When and how did the Messiah become a curse for us? Um, By the way, if you look back at verse number one of chapter three, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is the gospel. This is what Paul preached to the Galatians. This is what they believed. But how is that a curse? Um, Granted, the Romans were hated. They crucified 
thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, uh, how, is, how is Jesus' situation different? Well, in Deuteronomy 21, we are told if a man is guilty of a capital offense, a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree. In other words, that's not how you kill him. You might stone him to death, whatever, but then you hang his body on the tree. You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. A criminal's body was to be hung on a tree because he had broken the law. And breaking the law brought a curse as well as punishment. Okay? And Paul is not saying that, you know, because a person is uh, hung on a tree that he is cursed by God, but rather that being hung on a tree is an outward sign, in fact, that they have broken God's law. In a real sense, it is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus, the Messiah. That he was crucified, he was hung on a cross, which one would say is symbolic of a tree. But in fact, it shows us that the Messiah was hung on a tree and therefore was cursed. But as I said, Paul goes in a very different direction than what we might expect. Look at verse number 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. As I said, Israel failed to take the road that Abraham did. Okay, That is the road of faith, to trust in God. Instead, they chose the road of a curse. They had chosen to try to win God's favor. How can you win God's favor? when you're under a curse. Their failure brings that curse. Both Jews and Gentiles thus are under God's curse. In a different way, but they're still under God's curse, the Jews because they had the law and they didn't keep God's law. The Gentiles because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we are sinners and therefore we are under God's curse. Paul tells the Ephesians later on in his ministry that Gentiles are excluded from citizenship in Israel. We are foreigners to the covenants of the promise. All these wonderful promises that God made, we're outside, without hope and without God in the world, in exile, if you wish. Kicked out of Eden, we're still out of Eden, we're still in exile. But Jesus came to redeem us from that curse. Not simply Israel, but everyone, the Gentiles, the nations of the world. Jesus, as the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, took the full weight of Israel's curse on himself, and not in some abstract, theoretical, in a very real and personal way, Jesus died in the place of his people. And so the call now is, this man, Jesus, became a curse for us. He was faithful even to death. We are to put our faith in in him 
and in his faithfulness. Jeremiah prophesied something along these lines. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And how did this happen? Paul's just told us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. It would be sad if Paul stopped here, but he he goes on, and now he tells us a new story, a different story. It is the story of the promise. And here we find the nature of the covenant that God had made. Who benefits from this? Who is the beneficiary? When did the covenant go? You know, when was it established? And what is the condition of being a part of this? See, the big issue between Paul and the guys from Jerusalem is what did God want? What did he expect of his people? What were God's intentions? The people from Jerusalem is, God's intention is that all Gentiles would become Jews. And Paul says, no, God's intention is that the promise made to Abraham would benefit the Gentiles as well. First of all, the nature of the principle of a covenant, verse number 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. This verse, I think, in today's world means almost nothing because uh, the idea that you have a contract and a contract can't be broken or that it can't be added to or taken away from um, that's what you have lawyers for. <laughs> you know, you have a contract and you want to get out of it, you, you get a really good lawyer. Um, I've told this story to some of you. Um, some years ago, someone approached me and said, um, we're wondering if you want to sell the property here, if you want to sell the church property here. And I'm like, no, we don't want to sell the property. Uh, but even if we did, we have in our church constitution, it says that we cannot sell the property, that we will give it to another congregation. We cannot benefit. You know, we, we weren't the first people here, okay? And so why should we benefit financially? We would give it to another congregation. And he said, oh, so that's like a church covenant? And it's like, yeah, that's what it's like. Like, oh, we can work around that. I'm like... Really? You're telling the pastor that you don't have to keep the terms of the covenant, of the Constitution? Um, so when Paul starts out by saying, you know, an example from everyday life, now maybe back in the first century, but in the 21st century, uh, not so much. Um, 
unless we come to recognize that Paul, the word that he uses also speaks of a will. Now, if I make a will, I can change the will. But once I die, that's it. You may contest the will in court, okay, but the will is the will. And this is the point, I think, that Paul is trying to get across. So that somehow, you know, these, the guys from Jerusalem are trying to change the terms of the covenant, of the will, and Paul's like, yeah, that's not the way it works, is it? You, you know, once something is set, in a sense, set in stone, it cannot be changed. You know, it's interesting that people will say, you know, when someone dies and the will is read, they're like, well, you know, they promised me this, or I know they would want this. Well, what's written in the will is what's written in the will. And that's what you have to go by. Okay? So the covenant that God made with Abraham has been fully established. Okay? Getting ahead of myself, look at verse number 16. Who is the beneficiary of the will? The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. See, the purpose of a will is to give an inheritance to a beneficiary. Okay? That someone has something that they are passing on to someone else, an inheritance. Um, the promise is made to Abraham. that he would bless all nations through him. So that's a promise, that's a will made to Abraham and to his seed, okay? So there are two beneficiaries, that is to Abraham and to his seed. I would say Abraham didn't fully understand the promise that God made to him. But now that Jesus has come to the world, now we begin to understand that God made a promise to Abraham and his seed, singular, and that seed is Jesus. That Jesus is now the source of light that would bless all the nations. By the way, Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael, remember, through Hagar, and then he had Isaac through Sarah, but then he had other sons as well. Um, in Genesis 25, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Interesting enough, what he gives is while he's still alive. Okay, it's not wait till I'm dead and then it's all yours. He gives it to them and says, you know, move east because everything I has, have is going to Isaac. The idea of the seed should appeal to the men from Jerusalem. Okay? But I don't think they wanted to see themselves as the recipient of the promise. They wanted to see themselves as the recipient of the law. They want to focus on Moses, not on Abraham. Okay? And so, again, I think they would say if there was somebody while they're reading this letter is like I, I wish he had started with Moses and not Abraham well Abraham is or Moses is the law but Abraham comes before and it is the promise and the promise is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah 
Verse 17 is interesting. It's the date of the covenant. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Um, Ruth can tell you about this in her work, in legal work. Legal documents have to be dated, right? You need to have the date. Um, the, the work I've done in my research from 17th century Philippines, uh, they always start out with the date. It's not at the end, it's at the very beginning. You know, this is the date that this, thing, that this document is being written. Um, and why do we do that? Because you need to know which document has precedent over others. And the earliest document, if you wish, is the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham. Something that comes along later is the law, but that comes later. The beginning is the promise. This is the one that has the precedence, if you wish. The law doesn't do away with the promise because the promise came first. Um, the law is, in fact, a covenant. And God made a covenant with Abraham. But that covenant came before the one that he made with Israel. Um, you can find this in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 24. Okay? So the law was a covenant, but it did not do away with the promise or the covenant that God had made with Abraham. The date that Paul gives, um, 430 years later, if you know the Old Testament at all, um, we would say Paul's wrong. Um, Abraham lived at least 600, what is the number I have here? 665 years, something like that, before the law. So why does Paul say 430? Well, the promise, the covenant is made to Abraham. And then after Abraham dies, it is renewed with Isaac. And after Isaac dies, it is renewed with Jacob. And from Jacob to the time of the Exodus is 430 years. Okay, so Paul's not confused and neither should we be. This covenant that God made with Abraham keeps being renewed. This is the promise. This is the promise that God will fulfill in the person of Jesus. And then verse number 18, our last verse today. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no, it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. I suppose it is possible in a will to stipulate that my, my heirs will receive this what I'm leaving to them, if they fulfill certain conditions. I think it's possible to do that. Uh, but that's not what happens with Abraham. God makes a promise to him. It is, if you wish, an unconditional promise. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All nations on earth will be blessed through you. It's unconditional. It's not, now Abraham, if you're a good boy, if you do what you're supposed to do, then the promises will be fulfilled. This promise will be fulfilled. 
No, it is an unconditional promise. If it's based on performance, then we might, in fact, look to Moses, to Sinai. If you keep all these things, which you can't, so that's, that's a non-starter. But it starts with Abraham. That in fact, what we inherit is through grace. Why did God choose Abraham out of all the people on the planet at that time? It's only grace. That's all it can be. It's not like he was a good man. From what we can tell, he still worshipped false gods when God called him. It is grace that God called him and made a promise to him. And the purpose was that through Abraham's seed, the light would come to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, to you and me. That is the story of the promise. And Abraham believed God. That is the road God's people are to take, that of faith, of believing that God is faithful, that God is true, and that he keeps his promises. But some of those in Israel were not willing to take that path. They would rather take the path of performance. If we do these things, hey, we're good people, we keep the law, we have the law, then God will bless us. As I said earlier, it's better to live by keeping God's law than by breaking God's law. But that is not how you receive grace. And they simply didn't get it. Jesus came, Jesus the Messiah died, he took the curse, and in doing so, he opened the door for us. And these men from Jerusalem are trying to slam that door shut and say to the Galatians, yeah, you, you need to become Jews in order to receive the grace of God. Well, then it's not grace, is it? It's not grace, but something of works. So Paul is writing this letter to correct the Galatians that are going astray. And he does, through, he does so through a series of stories, and the Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week. But I would close by reminding you, it's a different context, but if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul says that all of God's promises are in Christ, yes. That is, the promises that God has made, they're fulfilled in Christ. And the story is that of promise, not of curse. May we take that to heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we heard in the quote we read today, apart from me you can do nothing. But in our foolishness, we imagine that we can. Our salvation is by grace. The path is that of faith, like Abraham, of trusting in you. And centuries later, Habakkuk would write, the righteous will live by faith. We are to trust in you, faithful and true God. But we live in a world 
that shouts everything to the contrary, that cynically asks, what is truth? That goes contrary to what you have said, what you have revealed. May we not try to fight or answer these things with weapons of the world, but in humility, remember that it is by grace. You promised Abraham, you fulfilled it in Jesus, and by your grace you have saved us. We give thanks. I thank you for bringing us together today. We pray again for our dear sister Lonnie that you would give her strength. Return her appetite. Take away the side effects of the medication. We ask in your grace you would do this. Watch over each one in the coming week as we walk through this world. And may we remember every day that you love us and you love us deeply. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.